0: Here it is! From deep inside your audio device of choice. Ladies and gentlemen, are you wearing um, boots, long underwear, gloves? Because it's a crypto winter. Ontario's self-proclaimed crypto king, Ontario. Part of Canada, not the community east of Los Angeles. Well, it is east of Los Angeles, but it's a whole province. His self-proclaimed crypto king, Aidan Petersky, told a waitress at a driving range in Miami, quote, I'll just pay everything in cash at the end. Unquote. The interaction was part of a two-hour live stream Pletersky posted online. It's Pletersky, sorry. It's just one of several lengthy live streams the bankrupt 25-year-old has run during international trips to the U.K., Miami, and L.A. this fall. A CBC review, that's the Canadian broadcasters of those videos and his other social media posts found that Platersky is traveling extensively despite his ongoing bankruptcy proceeding. Plans to fly to Australia on another trip this weekend. The Post also show Pletersky driving a McLaren and a Lamborghini. Offering to fly a woman from Sydney to Melbourne, for a night while he's in Australia and attending a boxing match in Manchester. For more than a year now, I say for more than a year now, Plotersky's investors have been trying to track down more than $30 million U.S. dollars they gave him to invest in cryptocurrency and foreign exchange. A Toronto-based bankruptcy proceeding that's being heard in Ontario Superior Court has recovered about $2.2 million for roughly 160 investors. The uh, bankruptcy trustee, who's a federally regulated professional responsible for investigating the finances of a person or business that has gone bankrupt, his name is Rob Stelzer, he found that Platersky only invested about 2% of investor funds while spending nearly $12 million on himself riding private jets, going on vacations, adding luxury cars to his collection, and leasing a lakefront mansion prior to going bankrupt. Now his recent travels are raising questions about how the crypto king continues to fund his lifestyle while actively bankrupt, and what the bankruptcy proceeding can and can't do to investigate and potentially prevent his travel spending. He has access to funds, said a fraud recovery lawyer. It would seem, the lawyer continues, that Mr. Platersky is not deterred by anything that has gone on litigation-wise in the bankruptcy to continue on his reckless type of spending, unquote. Pletersky's lawyer, Michael Siman, did not respond to requests for comment about how his client is paying for his recent trips and lifestyle. The uh, trustee, an accounting firm in the bankruptcy, said uh, they're aware of Platerski's travels. Although there is no prohibition regarding the travel of a bankrupt, the nature and amount of traveling has been lavish, said spokesperson. The trustee believes this conduct should be taken into account by the court's when considering any request Platerski may make to be discharged from bankruptcy. It's unclear, according to the CBC, how Platerski is funding his recent travels. Although in his videos he said as a streamer he's, quote, unemployed with income. The email said there's no mechanism for a trustee to seize the passport of a bankrupt under the Bankruptcy and Insolvency Act, a trustee can recommend such an action to the court, the bankruptcy court. The trustee did make two separate recommendations to the court that Platersky be incarcerated for failing to fully comply with his duties as a bankrupt. The court didn't grant the requests at that time. The trustee is confident it is accounted for Plotersky's major spending from his bank accounts. But a um, spokesperson said several investors told the trustee they paid Plotersky in cash for um, their cryptocurrency. So it's unclear whether all of that was deposited. But that's life when you're a crypto king, even a, cri- a Canadian crypto king. And an exhausting trend that has plagued crypto for years is opportunistic developers whipping up bunches of tokens, crypto tokens, inspired by some hot concept. The latest inspiration is one of the most influential figures in crypto, at least among those obsessed with memes. Elon Musk, whose controversial words, go F yourself, inspired the birth of hundreds of tokens with some hitting market capitalizations exceeding 25 million. It's uh, GFY is uh, the leading term from that group. The token was issued by someone soon after Musk told an interviewer that uh, advertisers who are boycotting the former Twitter should GFY. More than 250 GFY tokens have since been issued on several crypto networks, mainly Ethereum, Solana, BNB Chain and Arbitrum. The market capitalizations of these vary from under 15 grand to more than 25 million. The largest one attracted 19 million in trading volumes in just 24 hours. Anyone can issue tokens with relative ease. It genuinely costs just a few cents and they can be issued on decentralized exchanges basically instantly, with essentially guaranteed liquidity for anyone who wants to trade them, given how decentralized exchanges operate. Scores of truck tokens also popped up. That's another apparent nod to Musk, whose Tesla company debuted its long-delayed Cybertruck this week. Such tokens are the latest in a year that has seen crypto traders bet on tokens related to Warren Buffett's late partner, Charlie Munger, and hamster races. Some professional investors say meme coins and their narratives will always remain a part of the crypto ecosystem. Quote, meme coins are a huge part of the crypto trading landscape, whether we like it or not, says James Woe, founder of a crypto fund, he said that in an interview. While while the biggest currencies like Bitcoin and Ether have very low volatility, it's only natural that traders will look for opportunities elsewhere. And elsewhere, top-tier Spanish football club Atletico Madrid is reportedly preparing to sue Singapore-based crypto exchange Whalefin the uh, issue the non-payment of $44 million in sponsorship revenue for the football team. The club agreed to a five-year deal with Whale Finn ahead of last season. The exchange would be installed as one of the club's main sponsors and now claims the company breached the terms of the contract by failing to pay up and is seeking $22 million in compensation. Back in last December, it was reported that Whale Finn's owner was experiencing financial difficulty and had decided to terminate its $25 million a year sponsorship deal with the English Premier League club Chelsea just seven months after it was signed. Similar stuff going on with Italian football clubs Inter Milan and Roma, Blockchain firm Digital Bits was dropped as sponsors by the two clubs after it failed to pay more than $17 million to one of the clubs and $12 million to the other. It's the currency of the future fading into the past. And now, news of the warm. listen to the war. we can listen to the war new research finds million-year-old methane gas is trapped between the ice it's now surfacing with the potential to further warm the planet quote glacial retreat is the big driver of gas escape here says a glaciologist at the University Center in Svalbard, Norway. Scientists at Svalbard are learning what helps Americans understand the changes happening in the United States. As the Arctic warms, it adds to rising sea levels along our coasts and instability in the atmosphere, contributing to extreme weather events. Across Svalbard, a cluster of islands close to the North Pole Scientists are detecting methane gas gurgling gurgling up through groundwater springs. They checked 123 springs. They found methane in all but one. Carbon dioxide emissions from cars and factories are the primary driver of climate change, staying in the atmosphere for hundreds of years. Methane is short-lived by comparison, but it's far better at trapping heat. The primary sources of methane come from the production of fossil fuels and ag. More than 100 countries, including the U.S., have signed the Global Methane Pledge, a commitment to cut emissions 30% by 2030. But the particular team in Svalbard is concerned the world's accounting of how much methane is emitted each year does not include the gas emerging from the Arctic. Quote, If there's a huge natural rush of methane about to come, then that will change our planning for methane management, Permafrost, a a frozen blanket of soil, can lock massive amounts of ancient methane gas underground. As a glacier recedes, space can open at the edge of the permafrost, which then allow gas to escape. And in Svalbard... The glaciers really are vanishing. That from CBS. News of the warm, ladies and gentlemen. Watch the glaciers go by. Now just a little bit of news of the Olympic Games. French media are reporting grave concern within security forces that the opening ceremony out in the open along the banks of the River Seine could be vulnerable to attack. This is from uh, Agence France. A man known to the authorities as a raz- radical Islamist with mental troubles last week stabbed to death a German tourist close to the Eiffel Tower by the river in what prosecutors are investigating as a suspected act of terror. Quote, there is no plan B. We have a plan A within which we have several alternatives. The uh, sports minister told French Radio. She said the terrorist threat, in particular the Islamist threat, exists, but added, it is not new and is neither specific to France nor specific to the Games. That would uh, be reassuring, I guess. And the uh, Lord Mayor of Brisbane, Australia, Adam Schrimner, has quit the intergovernmental committee charged with organizing the 22 Brisbane Olympics, calling it a pointless talk fest and dysfunctional farce. It's the first significant split for the organizers of the bid, which is going to host the 2032 Games, according to the IOC. The so-called Leaders Forum comprises representatives from all three levels of government and other agencies. It's designed to deliver the Olympics and create a legacy for Queensland. Its brief is to work with the Queensland state government to progress the significant venues, villages, and transport infrastructure for the games, using progress as a verb. But Schrimmer said the group was only being used to placate key stakeholders while all the real decisions are made by the state government behind closed doors. The reality is we always wanted to be team players. The state government wanted to play politics, he said. He added, we don't need overpriced stadiums. We need better transportation. He actually said transport. He's an Australian. This week it became very apparent that the Intergovernmental Leaders Forum is a dysfunctional farce. A $2.7 billion redevelopment of the existing GABA stadium set to be demolished and rebuilt in Brisbane, is intended to be the centerpiece of an Olympics that will have venues across southeast Queensland. But Schremer called for other options to be considered. He especially balked at the state government's plans for Brisbane City Council to help cover an estimated $91 million in costs to upgrade another local stadium to host cricket and Australian rules football. Quote, the state government's game playing is jeopardizing the games and they're quickly losing the support of the people of Queensland. Queensland Sports Minister Sterling Hinchcliffe said a seat would be kept open for Schrimmer should he decide to rejoin. Or just take the chair.
1: It's a smart world
0: after all. It's a smart, smart world. Hackers have been able to gain access to personal information from about 6.9 million users of the genetic testing company 23andMe using customers Old passwords. In some cases, this information included family trees, birth years, and geographic locations, according to the company. After weeks of speculation, the firm has put in a number on the breach. More than half of its customers are affected. The stolen information doesn't include, does not include DNA records. 23andMe, as you know, is a giant of the growing ancestor tracing industry. It offers genetic testing from DNA with Ancestry Breakdown and personalized health insights. The company, based in South San Francisco, was not hacked itself, itself, but cyber criminals logged into about 14,000 individual accounts, about 1% of customers, by using email and password details previously exposed in other hacks. In other news, more hacks. As first reported by TechCrunch, 23andMe has acknowledged that by accessing those accounts, hackers were able to find their way into, quote, a significant number of files containing profile information about other users' ancestry, unquote. The criminals downloaded not just the data from those accounts, but the private information of all other users they had links to, across the sprawling family trees on the website. Information like names, how each person is linked, and in some cases, birth years, locations, pictures, addresses, and the percentage of DNA shared with relatives. One batch of data was advertised on a hacking forum as a list of people with Jewish ancestry, sparking concerns of targeted attacks. There is currently no evidence that any of the data sets advertised have had any buyers, or that they have been used by criminals. Official of CybSafe, a risk management platform, said the data breach at 23andMe, quote, emphasizes the importance of improving cybersecurity behaviors in the general population. Poorly secured accounts with weak passwords and no two-factor authentication put all those sharing their sensitive data at risk, he said. Twenty-three and Me is now telling all affected customers, as required by law. Good news—they're still abiding by some laws. Speaking of which, news of Musk love. A former Tesla employee has told the BBC he believes the technology powering the firm's self-driving vehicles is not safe enough to be used on public roads. Lukas Krupke leaked data, including customer complaints about Tesla's braking and self-driving software, to the German newspaper Handelsblatt. Handelsblatt, he said attempts to highlight his concerns internally, had been ignored. Tesla didn't respond to requests for comment, not even a poop emoji. Tesla has by far the best real-world AI Elon Musk said in a post on formerly Twitter this week. But in his first UK interview, Mr. Krupsky told the BBC's technology editor he was concerned about how AI was being used to power Tesla's autopilot service. Its autopilot feature includes assisted steering and parking, but despite its name, it still does require someone in the driver's seat with their hands on the wheel. I don't think the hardware is ready. And the software is ready, he said. He went on. It affects all of us because we're essentially experiments on public roads. So even if you don't have a Tesla, your children still walk in the footpath. He said he had found evidence in company data which suggested that requirements relating to the safe operation of vehicles that had a certain level of autonomous or assistive driving technology had not been followed. He added even Tesla employees had spoken to him about vehicles randomly braking in response to non-existent obstacles known as phantom braking. This also came up in the data he obtained around customer complaints. And finally, Kynotech News. News also Harvard was in the news this week because its president and the president of two other universities, in their congressional testimony, uh, rather soft-pedaled their approach to calls for genocide on their campuses. They, um Harvard president, Dr. Gay, had uh, issued an apology by the next day. But a former Harvard information, misinformation scholar has filed a whistleblower complaint against the university, alleging that its Kennedy School, I went there, canceled her research into social media harms in order to protect a $500 million donation from the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative. Harvard insists the charges are totally, absolutely, definitely unfounded and that Meta has no undue influence at the school just because former student Mark Zuckerberg's philanthropic organization promised the largest donation to date or because Facebook's former communications head, Elliot Schrag, participates in a fundraising body for the Kennedy School called the Dean's Council. Dr. Joan Donovan, presently an assistant professor at Boston University, worked for five years at the Kennedy School. She served as the Director of Technology and Social Change Research Project, which studied how communication technology affects social change. That organization, active between 2019 and 2023, reported on issues such as the role of social media, in coronavirus hoaxes and in the January 6, 2021 riot at the Capitol. In her declaration in support of a complaint, Donovan claimed once she began looking into allegations made in October 2021 by former Facebook employee Francis Hagan that met a Facebook put profit over safety, the dean of the Harvard Kennedy School, Douglas Elmendorf, and other school leaders began to question her about her work. Ultimately, she claimed, they shut down the research project she oversaw. HKS leadership systematically rendered our study mute with an escalating series of restrictions and bureaucratic hurdles designed to stop their work, and the power of Dr. Donovan's research findings to challenge Meta's false public narratives. That's the argument of whistleblower aid in a statement supporting Donovan's complaint against Harvard. Fight fiercely, Harvard. Fight, fight, fight. Demonstrate to them our skill. The might, nonetheless, we have the will How we will celebrate our victory We shall invite the whole team up for tea How jolly, hurl that spheroid down the field And fight, 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 let's not be rough though Fight, 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 and do fight fiercely Fight, fight, fight this is the show, and um, there is a book that I uh, read a short time ago. It's out now, and its author has just come off the road for um, a quite successful, I hear, book tour, and I uh, was such a fan of the book that I wanted to uh, discuss it with said author. His name is Tom Piazza. He's the author of... Uh, Two books that uh, really struck me very strongly. One was right after the uh, flooding of New Orleans, a, uh, a little nonfiction book called Why New Orleans Matters. It was at a time when—oh, uh, I'll introduce him and then babble on. Tom Piazza. Tom, welcome to the program. Hey, Harry. Um, Why New Orleans Matters came out at a time when people actually felt we had to defend the existence of this city, which itself was a remarkable state of mind and state of affairs. And you rose voluntarily to the occasion. Um, What moved you to do it?
1: Well, you know, as you say, the people felt it was necessary to defend the city. A lot of people felt it was the opposite of necessary. You know, I I remember uh, at that time the House Speaker and later convicted Dennis Hastert had said that uh, it just, after the disaster happened, said it looked like they should just bulldoze that whole place down there. And I thought, well, uh, is that so? And um, it was enough of that kind of stupid discourse, you know, that I felt it it, uh, Demanded some kind of a, a response. And I, I just happened to be, you know, at that time hooked up with an editor who said, you know, what can we do for you? Because I was in exile out of the city like pretty much everybody else. And I said, God, I don't know. I Maybe there's something I could write. And we evolved that idea mm. of writing a sort of, uh, you know, a, a short but pointed uh, rejoinder to that to that opposing discourse. And mm-hmm. So that was why New Orleans Matters, yeah. yeah.
0: Pithy, I would call it. And then, um, A Free State, a novel that you wrote some time ago, which is remarkable. Um, for anybody who, um, ascribes to the bizarre theory still in the air around, uh, Certain flyers of a certain flag that uh, slavery was nice and easy and they loved it. Um, this book is an incredible rejoinder, um, but it's also a great adventure novel about uh, a musician who finds uh, an odd home <laughs> as part of his journey. It's yeah. a great book. And now you come here, as I say, off the road from promoting a book called The Auburn Conference, which I read and enjoyed. Greatly. So, tell me about the cast of characters of the Um Hornburn Conference. (laughs)
1: Well, the fictional fellow who sort of organized this uh, conference in 1883 uh, was a kind of idealistic, somewhat naive junior professor at a tiny little college in upstate New York. And this is, what, 18 years after the close of the Civil War. And uh, he decides he wants to have some kind of big public gathering of uh, writers who could speak to the moment and discuss the future of America. And at that time, he invents, he invents, he invites uh, Herman Melville, Walt Whitman, uh, Harriet Beecher Stowe, Frederick Douglass, Mark Twain. He There's a Confederate general memoirist of my invention who's based actually closely on a actual figure a guy named richard taylor who was the son of president zachary taylor mm-hmm. and he wrote a an actual memoir of uh shall we say southern grievance um so anyway i modeled a character on him and uh, uh sort of a i guess what at that time they might have called a lady romance novelist uh and so all these folks are are gathered there and there's a cast of dozens uh, <laughs> a bunch of lady suffragists uh, kind of come in
0: when you say there. Is this in Auburn?
1: I should say, yes. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's, um, this is, it's in Auburn, New York, which is Ah. the reason I uh, picked Auburn was that it was the hometown of Senator and later Secretary of State, William Seward. Of folly fame. (laughs) The man who brought you Alaska and got no credit for it uh, early on. No, no, no laurels for it. And, um so it was his hometown but he was also a uh, significant participant in the underground railroad and he'd, mm-hmm. at his house in auburn he would shelter uh, escapees who were on their way usually to canada and also he um provided a lot of the wherewithal for harriet tubman to be able to acquire property just south of downtown auburn new york uh so it was it's a place rich with lore and rich with history um and just you know, down the road a few miles is Seneca Falls, where they had the first women's rights mm. conference in uh, what is it, 1848, I think. So it was a. It seemed like a natural place. Also, that whole area up there, uh, later was termed the Burned Over District, basically followed the route of the Erie Canal. A bit south of the Erie Canal, it kind of just grazed the uh, tips of the Finger Lakes, uh, uh, <laughs> the fingertips of the Finger Lakes, and. Uh, and, but it was crazy. And between Buffalo and, say, Utica, or certainly Albany, there was all this uh, ferment uh, in the 19th century. It was the birthplace of Mormonism, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there were places like the Oneida Colony. Mm-hmm. Uh, just you know, epic experiments in polygamy, uh, in sexual uh, abstinence, uh, collective living, all of this. And uh, so it was just a it just seemed like the appropriate place to have a conversation about the future of America.
0: Hmm. And so the conference lasts a weekend, yes? Mm -hmm. And first of all, what balls it takes (laughs) to put dialogue in the mouth of Mark Twain. (laughs) I mean, America's greatest wit probably ever. Um, And you did a wonderful job of his conversation and his thinking at this point I mean you had me believing that was where wow. did you get where did you get the tape of Mark Twain
1: you know? <laughs> that's a big compliment Harry thanks I mean in a sense it was the same challenge with each of those oh, sure. participants sure. although Twain of course is so familiar you know his mode of public address on the page and off the page because his speeches are uh, many of them are fairly familiar mm-hmm. to people um if I'd taken it as a challenge I don't know that I could have written that character or the others in a funny way I never uh, I, I never felt daunted in, in that way you know mm. by by that dimension of the material I think one reads and of course our experience of Twain and everybody else is of reading on the page mm-hmm. I mean it's a very voice driven style of address of course but uh, one hears it, I mean, or or one doesn't hear it, but you know, you and I are both, both play music and uh, so in reading these writers I'm also listening to the writers, I'm hearing and and really I think in a lot of ways that's where the true personality of the Uh, of the speaker or the writer comes through is in that tension between the supposed material that they're delivering, Mm -hmm. you know, uh, and their take on the material, Mm -hmm. you know. And so their whole attitude you find in what they accent, where the, you know, do they talk in small sentences? Do they talk in quick sentences? Are they addressing you quickly like Mm -hmm. this Mm -hmm. with periods after every clause, you know, you know, or do they... Construct long Henry Jamesian ian uh, sentences, comma, with subordinate clauses, <laughs> comma, going on, comma, end to end, comma, ad infinitum, until comma, finally, you know. Yeah. So it tells you something about who the person is. And if you listen, if you have an ear and if you have a streak of the mimic in you, which I, I probably I, evidently I do after this book, you know, yeah. and, um, that's... I don't know. Twain was in some ways one of the
0: easiest people to really? summon.
1: Yeah. Well, his his style is so color-saturated. Yes, saturated, yes. You know? yeah. Yeah.
0: The guy who said, uh, Wagner's music isn't as bad as it sounds.
1: <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, there's so many apparatchikers like that that just kind of shook off of him like, you know, like pedals yeah. you know, as he yeah. walked along. Petal,
0: petals of whip.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: So they're gathered there, at a particularly single, singular moment, um, Reconstruction has just ended, um, which some, me included, would consider the, um, the end of the experiment. <laughs> uh, yes. Yeah. You know, when a, a victor in a civil war walks away from the victory... And leaves the losing side to go about its business.
1: It seems to me I've heard that song before, very recently, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> many times, haven't yeah, we? Yeah.
0: yeah. But it's it's st- it's still a remarkable moment in American history.
1: Yeah, and I think I think when you say the the end of, I'm sorry, how did you put it? The end. The end the, of the American yeah, experiment. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. In in a way, I think that's a a, a defensible take of it because. So much, obviously blood was spilled, so much energy was expended on on trying to make things right, but only up to a point. And of course, the other thing, you know, the other thing I think people don't give enough thought to is just how complicit the North was. Oh no, uh, that's what I mean. Yeah, yeah, right. and so so right, exactly. as soon as as once once as as this invidious, confederate apologist puts it in the book but he's not too far off uh i mean he does have a point once the conscience of the north had been salved uh you know well they very kindly you know just picked up the chips and walked away
0: yeah growing up and recalling history as it was being taught at least then yeah probably the most underused word in the entire historical set of I, I, images and thoughts was reconstruction. Yeah. You know. Yeah. I uh, think that's right. And it it was so telling and so dramatic in its effect on the country going forward another almost century of Jim Crow <laughs> um slavery by another name convict convict slavery. Um it's almost as if the Civil War was fought for nothing.
1: Yes, and 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 the thing is The I chose to set the book at that moment because a a number of people, sorry, after the book came out, sort of said, well, why didn't you sort of set it before then so they could have argued the point, you know, and like tried to. So, well, for one thing, we sort of know how that comes out. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. But, you know, for another thing, um, it gives a completely different angle of light on things where they know they've passed the exit. And what now? You know, is it possible to salvage things? What are the prospects for the country once we've made this
0: de- devil's era? deal? Yeah, wow.
1: devil's deal. Fine. You know, and and um, what 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 is left? What can be done now? You know, what is the future? And the, and it became a different kind of pressing problem when it was no longer just a matter of who's going to win the war, mm-hmm. you know, but rather of you know what do we do about this country that seems to have this, what promises perhaps to be a, a chronic problem?
0: Yeah. yeah. Well, it reminds me a little bit of of um, after World War II when I at least thought that as you saw the EU in action sometime later, uh, particularly uh, Germany's attitude towards Greece in the 2008 uh, economic crisis, that uh, maybe Germany did win the war. And so, you know, it's possible to say of of the death of Reconstruction that maybe the South did win the Civil War
1: well they didn't lose it the way the way
0: they complained about
1: losing it <laughs> <laughs> yes and 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 the way we sort of patted ourselves on the back and thinking we know. in the north yes yeah, we in the north yeah, yeah. Mm.
0: so um, tell me a little bit about the other characters sure we've talked about twain
1: well you know everybody arrives at at this conference the Auburn conference at, at sort of a different point in their in their trajectory as artists and as, and as just citizens and as people, mortals, um, you know, each one of them is, with one exception maybe, and Twain might be that exception, had written their most significant uh, work before
0: the conference
1: yeah and in most cases maybe before even the civil war (laughs) uh melville's uh moby dick you know that was what 1850 plus or minus a year um uh you know walt whitman's leaves of grass had come out well before the civil Mm -hmm. war and he kept rewriting it and adding to it and adding to it you know but uh you know certainly the that that what he rolled into the middle of the field and the detonated, you know, with the publication of the first edition of that was that was the event, really. And then it kept getting richer, if if that's how you experience leaves of grass. <laughs> um, I don't mean to be snarky in saying that, but it's funny for me with Whitman, and this is a parenthesis, perhaps, but w- with Whitman, I, I really, I had never loved that sort of expansive manifest destiny, mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, dimension of Whitman's uh, oratory, if, if you want to call mm-hmm. it that, it, because it was so tied up with ego and with uh, sort of indefensible, what would now maybe call tropes of entitlement. Um, mm-hmm. But when I read his book, Specimen Days, which is a collection of pensées vignettes of his earlier life uh what it was like to talk to the uh, soldiers in hospital when they were you know during the world during the civil war mm-hmm. um what it was like to go to the theater on the bowery as a young man you know and be said a young gay man at that time in mm-hmm. this country right so it was a, a very touching and i came to love whitman at that time at the time of the auburn conference 1883 a very very old man Mm. he probably shouldn't have been making the trip to auburn clearly he had nostalgia for earlier times as people do as they get older very often and i think he thought oh going to a campus seeing other writers you know speaking Uh, so he forces himself to go and that's where he is at that time Uh, Is this addressing what you were curious about? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Melville, uh, as I was saying, I mean, he wrote Moby Dick, uh, what—I'm trying to do the math in my head—33 years before the conference. He um, was—and I guess the irony to be aware of for us today is that, you know, we consider Moby Dick this landmark of of world literature, not just American literature. Mm -hmm. um, uh, But—and Melville certainly considered it his, you know— his high water mark, uh,
0: <laughs> magnum opus.
1: magnum opus. and um, but, you know, his first, first couple of books were big sellers I mean he had quite a name as sort of this South Seas adventurer you know mm-hmm. and it, but uh, when Moby Dick came out people didn't know what to make of it and it kind of tanked and then he wrote two more novels that tanked even worse than Moby Dick did oh Pierre God. or The Ambiguities and um, a very interior kind of psychological novel and, and then The Confidence Man which is a favorite of a lot of uh, you know fanciers of literary haute cuisine uh, you know but <laughs> Uh, it's certainly not a book that invites you in with mm. a compelling story plot line you yeah. know so anyway so melville almost doesn't come because become a bit of a recluse in late life by that time mm. he was mainly writing poetry at that and when he first gets his invitation to the conference he's kind of i i i i don't i don't i i i, I can't <laughs> but when he thinks about the Possibility of spending some time with other writers. He kind of, well, you know, Frederick Douglass will be there, etc. So anyway, he decides to come. Frederick Douglass at that point was a, you know, who was one of the principal attendees, was a big, it's uh, a star, a figure in the country's, in the life of the country uh, on the order of, I don't know who would be comparable today, Martin Luther King certainly, hmm. you know. And, uh, A remarkably complex individual, I mean, and one of the reasons I think he attends the conference is to maybe shed that mantle of, you know, sort of the the spokesman of his race and to actually be with other writers because he was a great writer, you know, which we sort of don't think of him because the content of what he was saying was so foregrounded, but his mastery of oratorical flourish and the way he could drive things home Mm. with his phrasing. I mean, he was just remarkable. And the oratory comes through on the page too, you know, who am I leaving out? Harriet Beecher Stowe. Yeah. So Harriet Beecher Stowe, I have a few friends for whom Harriet Beecher Stowe is the favorite character because she's basically, she doesn't really feel like going to this conference. She and Mark Twain are neighbors, I should say, in mm. Hartford, Connecticut at that point. they, In fact, you can go there today and their houses are adjacent immediately wow. adjacent. And so you can go from one to the other, just walk across the grass. And uh, so Twain kind of jollies her in to go into the <laughs> to the conference but she's you know she's so over it man she's so i mean when her you know the her magnum opus uh uncle tom's cabin came out it just it it was um well i mean lincoln was famous for saying uh when he met her well here's the little lady who started this big war huh And and it, I mean, there's, you know, obviously it's not that simple. But that book did a huge amount uh, to attract attention and sentiment uh, against uh, slavery. And um, so she had gone through all that, but she had also had the experience of uh, seeing her, seeing that work, uh, sort of. uh, what conscripted uh into all these different theatrical presentations minstrel shows uh mm. you know sort of um, uh corrupted play versions you know uh she just was over and she kept writing books because for one thing she had to she was the, the engine that drove her household i mm. mean she that her income was was the principal thing and you mean uh,
0: people write for money <laughs>
1: <laughs> Those were the days. Didn't Dr. Johnson say no man but a blockhead ever wrote but for money? I was, <laughs> but uh, I may have that wrong. That might have been Jelly Roll Morton. Anyway, <laughs> but whoever it was who said it. But so so she, she's very funny. She gets there, and she just obviously... Uh, not particularly impressed with herself or anybody else for being there and especially she uh, the 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 romance novelist uh, lucy comstock the fictional romance mm-hmm. novelist who i invented um dr- drives her up a wall so <laughs> <laughs> uh so and she's remarkable and she also at toward the end of the book the book kind of ends in um how can I say tears? Uh, it it goes off the rails. Uh, mm. Not that you'd expect, not that you'd expect a big conversation about the future of America to go off the rails. Ho ho ho! But
0: uh, <laughs> I, much I, like the country itself.
1: I, well, there you go. Um, and so, so she really gets into it with this Confederate general memoirs, and she tears him a new one. Mm. Very, very happy to see her do
0: that. <laughs> so. You've been touring. Um, what kind of reaction are you getting? Well, I mean, I,
1: I've got to say it's really been wonderful. I mean, this book is not going to be... Uh, I don't I not don't imagine it's ever going to be a bestseller unless somebody decides to make a movie of it or something. Mm. But the, I, I really... The audiences have been terrific. Um, really well attended. I've done some of my favorite events I've ever done uh, during this tour. I did a wonderful... Uh, Event at the American Writers Museum in Chicago that streamed, and we got a great response to that. And um, you know, my God, I I, I'm trying to think of the the, uh, Center for Fiction in Brooklyn, New York, was an amazing event. And also, all along the way, I saw people I hadn't seen for decades. Hmm. They kind of they came out and uh, uh, and so it was. I was actually amazed at the degree to which people seemed to actually get what I was doing with the book. You know, Which
0: stands in remarkable contrast to the book's pre-publication experience, doesn't it?
1: <laughs> yes, and to some degree, uh, it's post-publication experience. Uh, the book. Yeah, how can I? How can I say? How do I? How do I approach this directly? Uh, It couldn't find a home initially. Well, it went to about 10, plus or minus one or two, 10 publishers uh, with my previous agent. And, and, uh, you know, my God, I wish I could have used the praise that the publishers lavished on the book, you know, as blurbs for the book. It would have been terrific. But they all ended up with the same thing, saying, you know, but I don't know how we can sell this book. (laughs) <laughs> yeah. One editor at a very reputable publishing house was even amazed that he had never heard of this conference and he <laughs> couldn't wait to find out uh, to do more research and find out about Maybe it. Maybe there's tapes. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, actually, it's but that brings up a th- I don't know if it's okay to do this out of sequence for yeah. what we're saying but just as a parenthesis, you know, none of those authors who participated in the conference made any you know recorded there was no record of their voice except for one, Walt Whitman, mm. um, and there's there's a fragment, a tiny fragment, I think it's less than a minute of him reading from his poem America, and um, he, all, you can you can only hear sort of
0: <laughs> you know,
1: like that, and then finally out of nowhere you hear ample <laughs> ample, and I. Ample. It An was ample. kind of Brooklyn Bray, you know. And I remember when I heard that, I thought, oh, my God, of course. Whitman was sort of a, he was a Brooklyn guy. He wasn't like a Harvard, you know, type of uh, high diction person, of course. And, but that sound was what actually really helped me find Whitman's voice mm-hmm. as well as maybe that I did in the book. You know. But so to return to the what you were asking me about, my agent... Uh, Seem to think that I could profit from having a different kind of representation, and basically, <laughs> I think the phrases dumped me. Yeah. And so I, it's I spent several months kind of trying to find another agent. It was really a very painful time, you know. Um, My former editor told me that it didn't join the conversation happening today, didn't illuminate the conversation happening today, which is kind of funny because it's sort of the point of the book, which is that the same exact conversation is happening today. But anyway, Elvis Costello, um, whom I uh, got to know while we were both involved with the Treme series, HBO's Treme. He was acting, I was writing. Writing. I was one of the principal writers for that. And uh, Elvis, we... Our friends, for a long time at this point, we show each other what we're doing. He'll send me sound clips, and I'll send him whatever I'm writing. And he really loved this book, and he was kind of affronted. Elvis was pissed off, actually, that that the book was not getting published. Uh, And so he had a little interview in the fall of 2021 with The Guardian, or maybe it was The Observer. Where one of these things where they say, Well, what is your, you know, what was your favorite movie this month? What was your favorite blah, blah, blah TV show? And so for his favorite book, he said the as yet unpublished manuscript of Tom Piazza's The Auburn Conference. And he gave this remarkable, probably 55 word uh, vest pocket summation of mm-hmm. the book. It was like watching a diver do this elegant series of flips and nips and tucks and, and then go boom, right? it was terrific and of course that stimulated you know sort of suddenly online interest in the book this is taking too long to talk about but, but Grill Marcus uh, saw what uh, the, the cultural critic and mm-hmm. music uh, writer Grill Marcus brilliant guy uh, had seen um, what Elvis wrote there and he got in touch and wanted to see an advance galley of the book I said well Grill, uh, that's one for the Ouija board I don't know when that's coming if it's ever coming so I told him the story and long story short, he, uh, he introduced me to his agency. And one of the agents there read the book and kind of went, why isn't this being published? This has to be published, and we'll mm. publish it. We're going to get this published. So he just took an enormous amount of uh, you know punishment, I think, sending it out and getting it back, sending it. And, but he persevered, and it got published by the University of Iowa Press, which published it beautifully,
0: beautifully. Does the University of Iowa Press... Publish a lot of novels?
1: Very few. <laughs> I thought but, so. But they have started, you know, one of the things about this moment is that with the kind of increasing uh, conglomeration of publishing, mm-hmm. to speak only of publishing corporate entities, um, you know. More and more of what used to be discrete publishing houses are, are you know, joined under one big rubric uh, with one big sign hanging over the whole thing, with is an S with a couple of vertical st- strikes <laughs> through. Mm-hmm. So it's all about, you know, obviously it's making money. It's a, and it's always a business, but this is it's. The, the, the horse that's pulling the cart is absolutely profit, maximizing profit. So you have fewer and fewer books that are that more and more resources are devoted to. Mm-hmm. And they're trimming staff because that costs money. Well, so,
0: I think anybody who reads knows that they have trimmed copy editors at every institution <laughs> on the face of the earth.
1: Yes. True including,
0: including the New York Times. Most particularly, but also book publishers.
1: We could just go right down the right down the list. So anyway, but with all that yakety yak, so basically what happened was Henry uh, sold the book. It got published beautifully, but uh, yeah, it was a long road to publication. And it's and I'm going to say this, even though we may not want to end up putting it in there, but as long as as long as we're documenting this, uh, you know. So and it has had. When I say how pleased I am with the reception of the book, it's had no reviews in major venues. The only one, really, has been in the New Orleans uh, Advocate. Uh, But nothing in New York, nothing in Boston, nothing in D.C., nothing in Chicago, nothing in—do I keep going? Nothing in L.A., San Francisco? You're living
0: in the wrong city, mister.
1: Well, well, I don't even know that that's the problem. I think there are certain— I just think that the the so-called conversation right now, I think the center of interest is in a different place, perhaps, than where my book locates it. Mm -hmm. The nature of what mass audiences are looking for right now, I think, with books, is a little bit different from what I'm delivering in the Auburn Conference. That said, the book has sold what I would consider to be kind of shockingly well given all those variables i just mentioned you know and it's still selling and uh, and the and the people who have the people who have liked this book and responded to it have really responded to it in an exceptional exceptional way uh, well
0: you can include me that bunch because um, you know i i also saw a, a pre-publication copy of it and, you know raved about it to you so
1: well and and your words meant a lot to me harry uh
0: well that um, means a lot to me
1: no i think it actually meant more to me harry
0: <laughs> i think we've reached the end of this conversation <laughs> tom Piazza. congratulations on uh, the auburn conference and more success to it and to you and thank you for being with us today thanks so much harry Ladies and gentlemen, that concludes this week's edition of Le Show. Back next week, same time, same radio station, or on your audio device of choice, whenever you want it. Love to have you back. A tip of the Show, chapeau to the San Diego desk, to the Hawaii desk, to Pam Halstead, and to Thomas Walsh, here at WWNO New Orleans. the playlist of the music you hear here, your chance to get Cars I Talk t-shirts before we run out, and uh, so much more all at harryshearer.com. forget to mention I'm still on Twitter because it's not still Twitter The show comes to you from Century of Progress Productions and originates through the facilities of WWNO. Flagship station of the Changes is Easy radio network. So long from the Crescent City.